Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. Welcome to season nine of a Vietnam podcast, sharing the stories of people connected to Vietnam. My name is Neil Mackay. I've been living in Vietnam since 2016 and hosting this podcast since 2019. I wanted to know more about the people that are connected to Vietnam, Vietnamese and foreigners in Vietnam or around the world, and then share their story. My guest today is the CEO at OMG Talent Group, He has been operating businesses in Vietnam for nearly 30 years and was previously the media director at Saatchi & Saatchi. He's an owner and partner of several local companies covering marketing, events, sport, community, education, commercial property and digital transformation. I think that's every industry in Vietnam covered. Now today we're going to talk about the rise of the young, educated overseas Vietnamese that are returning and making Vietnam their home and his two new startups he launched this year, The Bao Project, featuring the VQ Chronicles and OMG Talent Management Group. My guest today is Mike Nguyen. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Neil. Now, that is a long list of industries to be involved in. What industries have you not been involved in? It's hard to say, because being here long, uh, 30 years, I have my hand almost in all the key industry. I learned that uh, from different industry and learn from the different so that I'm not one dimensional. 
and that uh, from import export to F and B to uh, community centers to sports, uh, I just basically try to gain as much knowledge as I can, and then be able to uh, when I network to meet people and able to not just hold a conversation but to really understand their business, and that they see, hey, this guy really knows the industry. I can barely keep up with managing two podcasts, comedy shows, and teaching. I can't even fathom how you can have the time and the brain power for all of that. Yeah, it, it basically, I, I'm not good at dancing or singing, but I'm very good at multitasking. I work on projects where five major projects, which requires five different CEOs, but I did it myself, and corporations are very astounded that I'm able to manage my time and to juggle these big projects, which require a full-time CEO per project. But they hand it over to me, and it's still successful with just me handling these five projects. Now, one thing I didn't mention there was basketball. Now, that is your biggest passion, right? I love basketball. It's funny how I started. Um, when I was growing up in the U.S., I was always the youngest kid in the group, and uh, my sister... She uh, went to the one of the universities there. And in the U.S., they have this, what they call the intramural league, which is students who play against each other at the university. And over at Cal Poly Pomona University, they were very competitive. And she's older than me by maybe five years old. And so her classmate at the university needed a coach. And here I am, a young guy. They didn't know my age. Uh, but my sister knew I was very good at basketball, and I, I was very good at teaching it. And so I'm a teenager at the time. And so my sister introduced me to, you know, this group of guys, you know, third, fourth year students, university students, and to say, you know, my brother teaches basketball. And so she didn't tell them my age because I'm like 17, 18 at the time. And while they're like 23, 24-year-old, and they said, okay, show us what you got. And uh, after that day of really teaching them the basics, and they saw, hey, man, you're pretty good. Why don't you become a coach? And I started coaching their intramural league for a year at the university. And they didn't find out my age until at the end of the season. And so uh, from there, I think the passion grew of, hey, from other inputs from the people. They said, hey, you have a future as a full-time coach if you wanted to because you're able to relate to the players and communicate you know, what it needs to be successful. Wow. I thought you were going to tell me you like playing basketball because it makes you taller. <laughs> I wish, I wish. You know, that's a misconception here in Vietnam because a lot of the parents I have to really explain and educate here that basketball doesn't make you taller. It's basically getting sleep, uh, eating right, and it's in your DNA, you know. You say it like it's so obvious, but I mean, this is the number one thing. So I, I've been teaching here for six years and we do tests with the children or even just in general conversation. And you ask, oh, what's your favorite sport? Nearly always basketball or swimming. Same answer every time. Why do you like basketball? Because it makes me taller. And so now I use it as a joke on stage. I wanted to use it for the longest time and I couldn't think of how to make it into a joke. And eventually I came up with it one day. I was like, that's it. And I've been using it ever since. So the punchline goes, I wish it was true that the more you played with something when you were growing up. <laughs> See, I don't even need to finish it. <laughs> so uh, that that's the joke from that. But so a few months ago, 
I googled it, and there is some evidence that playing basketball growing up makes you taller. Well, I think um, if you're uh, fitness-wise, you're active. And so when you play a sport, you burn a lot of calories. And so you're going to have to eat more and uh, drink more uh, water or liquids. And so I think uh, consuming a lot of the protein and energy will help your body to grow. But it has to do with a lot of it with your DNA. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm like one, 1. 1.8 meters which is, uh, for Asian height, is good height. What is that in feet? Uh, I'm still five down. nine. Five so nine. Five yeah, nine. Still yeah. Do feet. yeah. So for Vietnamese and you know, Asian person, mm-hmm. I do stand out a little. But uh, they, you know, since I do own an academy, basketball academy, they think, you know, I got my height from basketball. <laughs> so people say that to you. <laughs> they, well, they, 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 I, I want my son to be your height, you know, or taller. It's infuriating. This is like, no. But, you know, this season we just had Justin Young on the show. Um, and he's 6'3", I think, 6'4". Yeah, about 1.95. Uh, there you go. Yeah. See, yeah. It's weird because I'm from the UK and then I've lived all over the world. And the UK changed the metric, but I think we still use miles and we still use feet. And so I've still never, even of all my years being overseas, I've never really been able to transition to the, the meters. I think I'm one point, what's six foot, 1.84? Six foot one, were you six foot or one? Six, six foot, one? exactly. Yeah, you're about uh, probably one eight five seven Something, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even know, I don't even know. But yeah, Justin was on and it, so he was talking about the growth of basketball in Vietnam and how exciting it is. So he's the captain of the national team, which is amazing. And the funniest part of that interview so i didn't host that episode it was paul villanova up in hanoi and the best part of that episode i don't know if you've heard it if anyone hasn't listened to it go back and listen to it he explains that when he first came over here and they had to educate the fans about how basketball worked because the first game he played the fans were cheering every time any team scored (laughs) yeah i mean i tell i will I'm actually, they consider me, there's an older gentleman that passed away here. They call him the Godfather. He was in his like 65, 70, passed away from cancer. But they would call him the Godfather of basketball because, you know, he would play at the court and everyone, he's an older gentleman, and he loved basketball. When I first got here, how I started my academy was because when I arrived in Vietnam, I was directed to a specific court in uh, District 3 in Vietnam. And there wasn't many basketball facilities here when I arrived. And uh, when I went to the facility, you saw probably about 70% of the people who were playing without any footwear. It was just barefoot. And they didn't understand how to play. And so I met up with one of the lady coaches there. And uh, I said, you know, would you mind if I can show your kids some uh, training that I learned from the U.S. And she was like, yes, please, because uh, she's dying to learn more. I think she played for the national, Vietnam national team back then. And uh, she was like, yes, we, we, we welcome you. And so I started to teach the kids in District 3. And, you know, you, you got all these kids who just running around with no shoes, didn't understand how, the backboard and the rim, and but they had a passion for the sport. Even though soccer is number one in Vietnam, but uh, back then... But it doesn't make you taller. It doesn't make you taller. <laughs> it doesn't make you taller. So so then tell me, um, you, were, you were teaching the university students basketball as a teenager. 
what next? Then I went to a local junior college in the U.S. because I have seven brothers and sisters. All my brothers and sisters went to a prestigious school, but I saw that they were in debt. And I did not want to put my parents into debt because we grew up very poor. And so I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go to the local junior college and look for the grants and, and, and scholarships or whatever money that I can find from the government to help subsidize the education. And so I went to Mount Sac, Mount San Antonio Junior College, and everything was paid for. So I found grants, worked three jobs on campus, and continued to try to hone my basketball skills. Back then, I was considered very good. There were friends of mine who actually... Asian players in the U.S. 30, 35 years ago didn't get the proper respect because it wasn't an Asian sport. And a lot of my friends, they were all what they call all league. They won a lot of prestigious league awards, but they weren't ever offered a scholarship. And so I saw myself, I know that I wasn't going to turn pro because back then there's no opportunity like they have now for kids here in Vietnam. And so I said, well... Maybe there's an opportunity in coaching, not as playing, but maybe coaching. And so after graduating from the local junior college, I was given the opportunity to become part of a missionary team to come to Vietnam and try to set up a free clinic hospital here. And that's how I landed in Vietnam. And then I started to pass on the knowledge of basketball to my people here in Vietnam. And when I started teaching in the District 3, I saw that the impact I was making with the community and a lot of the parents came up to me and said, hey, where's your academy? You know, where can I sign up? Because I was doing this all for free. And I said, well, I, I, I'm just giving my own time. I'm not really doing this for money. And they were like, no, you, you should do this for money because you're very good and you're a pro. And that's where, after a while, a lot of parents just said, hey, look, it, we'll support you. If you set it up, we'll start to sign up. It took me maybe like maybe two or three more years afterwards to really get it going because I was working full time. But after convincing from the parents, I set it up my academy. It's been 12 years now for the academy. So we're going strong and growing every day. So what age were you? So 12 years ago when you came back? The, the academy is 12 years old. Right, okay. But I came back in 94. So I didn't do the academy right away. It was basically getting my foot wet into the country understanding about the culture, learning about my people and then understanding the language. When I first came to Vietnam, I didn't speak Vietnamese. At home, I understood, I understood Vietnamese. My parents spoke to me in Vietnamese. I, I replied back in English. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so my older brothers and sisters, they're fluent, but it's me and my younger brothers and sisters. We understand. We've been around their culture in the U.S., but we didn't use, even though our friends were Vietnamese, we spoke English to each other. So tell me a bit about your family background then. Whereabouts in the U.S. were you based? How did you end up there? Yeah, so uh, only only recently I started to dig into my family's background. Because I know that uh, with the war that my parents didn't want to talk about it. And uh, my brothers and sisters really didn't share anything about that. What I learned mostly was from the U.S. educational system. And uh, it was mostly negative from the I was US. about to say, that would have been accurate then. Correct. <laughs> and very uh, one-sided. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember when I was in high school, just being in the classroom and the other kids would just look and stare and felt like I was the enemy because it was taught like the U.S. 
you know, it was our fault and the U.S. were winners and Vietnamese are the one who, who got a lot of people killed and such and such during the war. So I really didn't know how I ended up in the U.S. I never asked. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's only recently where a lot of my friends said, hey, Mike, you should share your story because you have something that maybe it can relate to a lot of people. And so I started to, you know, call my brothers and sisters and ask them, would it be all right for you to talk about it? And so they clearly remembered. What is the, the like age range of your brothers and sisters and, and yourself included? Yeah, so I'm 49. I have two younger that are maybe six and seven years old, younger than me. Uh, my oldest brother is three years older. And then, you know, another older brother and two other sisters that are maybe 12 year age gap. And so when they left Vietnam, they were teenagers. Uh, I left when I was about maybe two. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so I asked them, would it be okay for you guys to share? And so, so I assume you had no recollection of... None at all. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the, the thing of listening to other podcasts and we've interviewed people with such a disparity because they'd remember, they would, if they were teenagers when they left, they would remember things pretty clearly, whereas you as a two-year-old would have nothing. Correct. And so uh, they opened up. Wow. And then uh, my mom opened up and they really shared. Uh, I got to learn about my family's history. Basically, a lot of it had to do with luck and just knowing people. And so uh, I was born in Da Nang, which is, is the central. And uh, my mom, uh, luckily in the neighborhood, there was a guy who was a ship captain. And uh, uh, on like the last few days during the, the war, she was able to get a hold of this, uh, our neighbor who was the ship captain and his wife. His wife said, you know, you guys need to get out. And uh, she said her husband was in Vuntao and he has the ship there ready to go. Um, and but so, anyone who's not from Vietnam, Vuntao and Da Nang are thousands of kilometers apart, right? Like, about a thousand, roughly, would that be correct? I mean, Correct. It's pretty far. Yeah, very, very, very far. <laughs> Like so, the length of half the country. And we had to find out. My mom and dad was like, we had to find a way to get there. And so I think um, my mom shared that we went from uh, Gamrang, which is, uh, you know, in Yajang side, and uh, found uh, a tugboat that was willing to take us to Vung Tao. And uh, when we got to Vung Tao, we didn't leave right away because the ship captain's family was in Saigon. And so he didn't want to leave without his family. But during this time, uh, a lot of the people who wanted to get on the ship basically gathered all their possession and said, look at, you know, uh, for you to go into Saigon, you probably won't be able to come back because the war is going on. And this was before the fall of Saigon. This is right before the fall of Saigon and uh, uh, a few months right before the fall. And so everyone who was going to get on the ship took out what whatever, whether it's like gold necklace or whatever valuable possession, gave it to him so that he can give it to his family. So he's leaving behind the valuables. He's sacrificing himself because he doesn't know once he leaves the strip if he's going to ever come back. And so he's going to take care of his family to make sure that, okay, if I'm going, I'm, I know that my family's going to be okay with all these, uh, hopefully, the valuable that was going to be given. And so the people gathered their valuables, gave it to him. He was able to uh, to have someone give the valuables to his wife and the family in Saigon. And then um, on the day of um, 
the independence of Vietnam, uh, the 30th of April, um, that's when word came out that uh, Vietnam was liberated. And uh, so we were there for like two or three months. And then... In Vung Tao. In Vung Tao waiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No one was leaving yet because they, they, they wanted to see what was going on. And then when word got out that uh, Vietnam was um, basically independent. And um, on that day, the 30th of April, we left the dock. And uh, my brother, he clearly remember as we were leaving the dock, there were airplanes bombing other ships around. And he said that the ship that we were on, maybe 20 meters away, uh, the ship that was near us was just bombarded and exploded right before before us. And so there were a couple of ships that didn't make it. And uh, we were very lucky that we made it out of the dock. Uh, went to the Philippines um, to get, uh, stop over the Philippines to get uh, filled up the tanker, and then from Philippines to Guam. Uh, stayed in Guam on an um, army base, and that's where my brother and sister started to pick up English because we stayed there for a few months on an army base um, refugee camp, I guess. And um, we were sponsored by a soldier named Mike, and we were very lucky. So in the U.S. during this time, uh, a lot of people, um, you know, in the U.S., they saw on TV about people being displaced and that uh, there needs to be, you know, anyone wants a sponsor. And a soldier named my, uh, we call him Uncle Mike. Uh, he's since has passed away. Uh, and, you got to meet him? Uh, my family did. Um, so uh, he saw that, you know, People on TV was calling for sponsors, and him and his friend, another soldier guy, sponsored our family from Guam to the U.S. Amazing. Well, just in the last episode that's um, just come out, Matt Tran talks about a similar story with his family, um, and it was the exact same. Their family was sponsored by a, family, by a couple in Chicago, I think it was, from a refugee camp in Hong Kong, but they never got to meet them, or he didn't anyway. And yeah, he said, like, you know, if I could ever meet them in person, I would be... Eternally grateful. So I actually wasn't aware of that fact until the last episode that families could actually, or people could sponsor families to come over. Yeah, I mean, we were we were very lucky. I mean, getting out of Vietnam had to do a lot with luck and God. My mom, uh, my family is very Catholic, um, very um, religious family. And so um, a lot of uh, God was looking after us through each journey. Because even on the boat, um, a lot of people, there's some people that didn't make it. And, um, you know, uh, before we got on the boat, my mom basically got her, you know, all her documentation was in the luggage. And um, a gentleman asked, hey, she's carrying me as a two-year-old in her arms. And she's holding this luggage. And my brothers and sisters are going onto the boat. And a gentleman said, hey, why don't you let me hold it for you? And then when you go on, I'll give it to you. And all that our documentation was in that luggage. It wasn't anything valuable. And he basically stole it, took off. And we, you know, basically we ended up in Guam with nothing. No, no documentations and uh, just the clothes on our backs. And um, during the trip to Philippine and Guam, my mom said that um, a lot of families had to figure out how to survive with no food. And so there are some family that brought some rice. There's some family that brought um, whatever they had, clothing, whatever, and they learned to barter. So this family would have milk and this family would have rice, so they would barter each other. 
so that they all can survive. And then um, there's some people that didn't. And uh, my brothers and sisters who are older clearly remembered that there were people that didn't make it. And, uh, you know, they still keep that in their, their memory and uh, was feel so blessed that we did. I know that from my experience in this podcast, talking to people that there can be a disconnect between Vietnamese people and then overseas Vietnamese. Uh, and part of that, uh, and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, I'm just talking from, from the interviews, is that they perceive that if you're Vietnamese overseas coming back, you have lots of money, you should be sharing it. Um, maybe that you think you're better than people here and whatnot. I've never thought of this before. I'm interested to hear your, your thoughts. Do you think, so obviously the people who lived here in Vietnam and have lived through the war went through maybe horrible hardships, maybe not, depends on what the circumstances were. I've never heard anyone discuss in terms of, do you think that they understand these stories that you're explaining to me now and that I've heard several times from several people? I've never heard anyone talk about how that local Vietnamese have any understanding of the hardships and the difficulties that Vietnamese overseas went through. Your parents, obviously, maybe not yourself because you don't remember it, but your parents and your family went through yeah, are they aware of that? Is there any comparison to be like, yeah, we had it hard during the war, but we had it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think when um, it has a lot to do with perception and, um, you know, um, uh, being judged. Um, when when my family went to the U.S., we, we had nothing. Um, I started working when I was like five years old doing paper routes already. Um uh, I remember scrounging through trash cans and uh, picking up soda cans, uh, eating food from leftover, uh, you know, people discarding the food into the trash can and just eating that to to be able to survive because um, we didn't speak English, you know, when we first arrived. Brother and sister, even though they were in the Guam refugee camp, uh, just picked up a few words and, uh, you know, it didn't take a while until... We started going to the educational system in the U.S. and to be able to speak English. But, um, you know, it was very, for our family at least, we, we, we had nothing. And we just learned to just not complain, just go out and try to take care of each other. And, uh, you know, whether it's um, picking up cans for two cents and doing paper routes for 10 hours a day and not only getting paid like $5 a day, um, you know, we were just grateful that we were alive and we're together as a family. And so when I first came to Vietnam, uh, the perception was from previously overseas Vietnamese that came back, they flaunted their wealth. And uh, the funny thing is these people who came back, they weren't rich. They just pretended to be rich. So they'll come back with their gold chain and, uh, you know, showing off their wealth, gold rings. But they were basically saved for like four or five straight months or something, working at a nail salon or a garage. And they just saved, you know, all this money for this one trip to come back. And they flaunted it. And so when I arrived back in 94, 94 1994, you know, when I said that I'm overseas Vietnamese, they thought I was one of these people who, you know, basically was rich and uh, was here just to spend money and to go and, uh, you know, enjoy myself and not give back to the community. And so there was a lot of uh, prejudice and judgment. And um, I think uh, it was just from the early people that came back, gave us a bad rep for those that followed. And it didn't take a, it took a while for people to really understand that not all of us had money. 
And that we, when, even though you were in Vietnam and we were in the U.S., we were struggling ourselves just to make it there and to survive. And, um, you know, a lot of locals here, some that didn't care to listen to that. And, but there's some that has a good heart. And when we told our story, they said, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you had to go at least in the, in, in the U.S., at least 10 to 20 years to become someone, to make yourself where you came and have a position. And they thought, oh, you went to the U.S., you made it already, and that you have a nice house. And it wasn't that way. And um, so um, I had to really talk to the friends that I had and just, you know, really, they, they saw how I spend money. I wasn't throwing money around and uh, I was eating at the same restaurants, you know, um, you know, the street food they were eating outside. And, you know, uh, there wasn't anything when I showed them was uh, in terms of uh, monetary wealth difference between me and them um and so i i had to bring it up to them because they had the perception already even though they didn't they don't know me and i think it's right now it's getting better i think more locals are starting to understand that it's not easy as they think of us overseas enemies you know we're not all rich coming back with money and gold uh a lot of us we just want to come back help our community know where we came from find out about our heritage and to um, see if this is where in the future we want to make a life here. Well, seeing the growing wealth in Vietnam, and obviously you've seen it as well, it blows me away every day. I mean, see the Porsches, the Mercedes. Last night, I saw a little MG car, like convertible, just cruising along to the end. Everyone stopped to look at it. I'd never seen a car like that here. And I'm looking at it, and there's two young guys in there, you know, young, not maybe in like the 30s, maybe 40s, but young. And I'm like, this car must be worth half a million dollars at least, especially with import tax and whatnot. And you see that on the, on a daily basis. Now, obviously, this is in a, a wealthy neighborhood. You go to another neighborhood, you're not going to see it very often. But regardless, the, the wealth here is growing. That's without doubt. I think now, do you think, well, do you think that that's flipped now and that we're having Vietnamese overseas come back who, like, who've never been wealthy, like you said, they're coming back probably loaded with college debt, don't have a massive career or much money, and they're coming back and it's totally flipped. They're here and now maybe their cousins or their family, they're driving about in MGs with big apartments and it's completely changed. Yeah, I mean, actually the locals here are much richer than uh, us overseas Vietnamese. Um same with the expats. There's a perception that if you're an expat, you're rich, and that's it. I think, I think now everyone realizes that's not true at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I tell you a story. My sister, she um, had a neighbor uh, that in the same block. They just bought a house with cash, and um, the, you know the neighbor that she lives in. The, the, these houses are seven hundred thousand to you know two million dollars, and uh, the neighbor was Vietnamese, and they paid in cash. And, uh, this is in the U.S. This is in the U.S. and and these are Vietnamese that just came over. They you know they live here, and uh, you know they came, bought a house, paid in cash, and my my sister was astonished. She was like, "Wow, you know, it's taken me so many years to save up and still owe the bank. You know, you know, in the U.S. they they borrowed them from the bank, and here's a Vietnamese family that just came over and paid in cash, and so." Um, you know, 
even though Vietnam is is still an agriculture country, um, zero 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 point zero percent is still uh, that it's not one percent of the rich. It's less than that. It's 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 you know, um, uh, you know that 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 one percent of uh, wealthy people. Mm-hmm. They're based here in Saigon and Hanoi, and uh, very wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, they're living large because a lot of them um, are my friends. You know, you're talking about uh, people who own a couple yachts and, you know, uh, 50-room mansions and the MG cars and the Rolls Royces. And uh, Rolls Royces? I mean, that's crazy to yeah. me, even just seeing a Rolls Royce drive. In the UK, if someone had a Rolls Royce, they were, like, aristocratic. Like, they had a driver, they lived in a country mansion. Rolls Royce is the Rolls Royce of cars. And here you see one driving about, you're like, wow. Yeah, I mean, that's why the overseas Vietnamese, we don't have that. No, and uh, that's why a lot of we're like, man, you guys are living well, much better than us. Yeah. Don't don't think that uh, we're coming here and uh, driving Rolls Royces. We're, you know, we're taking the Grab and uh, you know, uh, yeah, driving you know, B, yeah, driving uh, motorbikes. Yeah, well, that's it. in my building. I see you know Porsches everywhere and all these. Cars. I've never seen an expat drive one of these cars. It's always a Vietnamese person, and then I'm on my bike. But I don't want to get away from the fact as well. Like you mentioned, that is a small percentage. There is still massive, massive inequality here. There are still very poor people. It's one of the juxtapositions of Vietnam where you, you could be in a cocktail bar or walking by the, the Park Hyatt, where it's, I don't even know how much a room costs at the Park Hyatt, hundreds of dollars a yep. night. Two fifty a night. Two fifty yeah. a night. And then outside there's going to be uh, an old lady in a Selling lottery. Yeah. yeah, selling lottery or picking up cans. And that to me always is like, that's what I think separates it a little bit from the West where we have wealth and we have money and there is disparity for sure. And maybe it's just not visible, but I, it's, I don't know when you're as visible as that in the US or the UK or Australia or New Zealand where you've got people literally living at large and outside people are picking up cans, you know? Yeah, I think here um, with the FDI growing, you know, Vietnam is like top five in uh, Asian you know, uh, FDI investments. And so... I was going to say, what's FDI? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know what it is, sorry, just for the listeners in case they don't know what it is. Can you explain what FDI is? Yeah, well, it's basically a foreign direct investment. Right. So FDI, yeah. I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> Not the FBI, but the FDI. <laughs> yeah, I think um, here is 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 uh, a lot of people, not just the overseas Vietnamese, but a lot of expats um, and just foreign companies see uh Vietnam is one of those Asian dragons that's growing. And so um disparity, even though more people as every year is getting richer, you still have a lot of people who are barely making it and, and, and struggling. And um that that's why um a lot of my friends we we try to help out as much as we can to give back to our people and um you know try to make a small impact. We know we know that we can't help everyone. But uh, as long as we can start somewhere, uh, either our, in Vietnam, what they call, you know, our little district, and then you have the city, and then you have the, you know, uh, you know, uh, regional. And so we feel, you know, if we can help out just even a couple people, uh, not to give money, it's not about giving money, but to give them training and soft skill skills so that they can, on their own, help provide for their family for the future. And, uh, you know... Um, that's what, you know, uh, my business group, we try to do 
or people here is to provide that education and that, you know, provide workshop training and, uh, you know, business skills and soft skills so that they can go on their own and then make a, a living on their own for their family. Well, I remember when we met for the first time, you were having a meeting that night and one of your passions was helping with the environment, which I, it was like music to my ears because, uh, you know, I'm very passionate about protecting the environment, I have in the past when I've lived in New Zealand. I mean, New Zealand has this clean green green image and then you get there. I mean, yeah, it's very green, but it's also like has massive pollution problems as well. And we'd be picking up plastic on the beach. And so this is not like a, a Vietnam problem. It's a worldwide problem. But you come to Vietnam though, and you're like, oh my God, the plastic cups, plastic bags. I mean, the plastic bags for everything. Oh, I want to scream to the top of my lungs. Like even yesterday, I'm in like the family mart and the guy gets one thing and the guy just immediately gets a bag and puts it in. And then you, I didn't watch him, but I've seen it before. They walk out, put the bag in the bin and you're like, what just happened there? Like this, this bag is now going to last for a thousand years and clog up the waterways. And it went from the counter to the, the door. Anyway, rant over. Sorry, I get, I get, uh, that, that's one of, I get, I get asked quite often recently because I've been here for six years. Oh, you must love it here. I'm like, depends when you ask me. It can change moment by moment. One moment, I will literally be looking at the blue skies, the warm weather. And I'm like, I love it here. It's so good. And the next minute, I see somebody get a plastic bag and I'm like, I hate this place. Uh, overall, I do love it, obviously, but it, it has that uh, ups and downs. Um, but tell me more then after my rant now. Tell me more about you, what you do for the environment here in Vietnam. Because what I thought was amazing when we spoke was, obviously, you're, you're Vietnamese overseas. Do you like the term VQ? This is something that comes up on the podcast and there's different answers. Do you use that phrase? Well, uh, I'm a part of a VQ business group. Um, we're about to have a, one of the, well, probably the first get together as, as, a, as a community uh, in terms of organized. Um, there's some in the group that doesn't like the word VQs because they think it's derogatory. Because it used to be, right? Yeah. And I think, it, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but from my experience, it's changed, right? Yeah, I think um, there's some people that accept it. Um, you know, some people are okay with overseas Vietnamese. Uh, you know, the superior, uh, uh, you know, as, as someone who, who uh, feeling people's giving a name, being uh, labeled a name. Um, but now I think that, you know, really the meaning, the definition is, is, is quite changed now. Because there's um, people who who have a Vietnamese passport, but they studied abroad. And they've been abroad for like 10, 20 years, but they still hold a Vietnamese passport. And so do they consider themselves a VQ or overseas Vietnamese? It's a bit messy, doesn't yeah, it? When so, yeah, <laughs> correct. And so right now, you know, the group we have talked about it, of what is a, what is a overseas Vietnamese? What is a VQ? And uh, the meaning has changed now because there's... You know, uh, you know, people who are through blood heritage or marriage or, you know, um, different ways that they have a connection to Vietnam. And so uh, for going back to uh, the environment, um, uh, I have an F&B business. And so I had a, a small cafe and um, this cafe was basically a stepping stone to my community center that I was going to build. In, in Saigon and um, at this uh, cafe I did a lot of free get-togethers just to get the uh, community together and um, I met up with a lot of people who uh, had the same 
core values that I had, same belief that, uh, especially here in Vietnam, we always wonder where did this trash go? You know, because there's so much people they would just throw the trash at the side at the sidewalk, and uh, you know, even living in an apartment, where where do where do they take this trash? And so I got to get to know a few people who were, you know, they say, Mike, you know, you know a lot of people. Why don't you create a group to try to figure things out and make an impact? And so I said, okay, let me, let me. So I created uh, Save the Planets group here in Saigon, which is made about made up about 20 CEOs who have a connection to the environment. Either they have a factory that makes a product that's environmental friendly from uh, grass straws or, um, you know, reusable uh, clothing wear that they may turn into a, some, an item that is reusable um, or recycling and helping out with the, the trash situation. And so, um, you know, we would get together once a month and try to figure out how can we at least help our neighborhood first before we can reach out to the different cities in Vietnam. And so um, recently, uh, we wanted to not just to get together and talk so much, but to have some sort of uh, action. And so uh, we talked to a few people in the U.S. that uh, they have done projects in Vietnam, but they're doing it from the U.S. and they would fly back and forth. And they're looking for groups like myself, like our group, where we're based here and we want to help the environment. And so one of the first projects we want to do together is um, sort of like a walkathon where we will go and uh, block off maybe uh, a mile of a certain district and gather volunteers to go pick up the trash. And then uh, the trash, when we pick, you know, picked up the trash, we'll have a, uh, a couple of friends, they have trash bags that are uh, biodegradable. And so that's that's their business for the environmental friendly. And then we will take this trash at the end and then... Throw in the river. No, that, well, that's, that's, yeah, that's where, you know, we came up with a plan where uh, we wouldn't throw it in the river. It just makes me laugh. I could just imagine getting all these... Yeah, we picked up all this trash and then just hit it in the river. We basically worked out a system where um, we would hand it off to the, the next processing part. And so um, a gentleman in the U.S., uh, overseas Vietnamese, he's, have done, he's done projects where they would take these trash and then turn into reusable bricks and, uh, or, or reusable where they can build um, a school or house for someone in the province of Vietnam. That's the most difficult part because I've been involved in trash cleanups going back to New Zealand um, and here in Vietnam a little bit as well. It's really easy to organize people and be like, let's pick up trash. What do you do with it? So I'm joking about throwing it in the river, but obviously you don't do that. But what do you do with it? Because even here in Vietnam, someone came to me when I worked for corporate social responsibility and they said, oh, we want to do a trash pickup in this area. And I said, oh, great. Have you spoke to the ward? Well, who's going to pick it up after? Where are they going to dispose of it? What are they going to do with it? It's a, and that's the most difficult part. Like what happens to it next? Is it going to be recycled or is it just going to get incinerated? Or what's the, the worst? Is it just going to get thrown away? Yeah, correct. I mean, so the uh, the group, we really thought about it because yeah. we don't want just to pick up trash and then cause more, yeah. uh, <laughs> making it worse. Yeah. And so we had the process of, um, you know, having containers 
and then the, the trash will be inside these containers, which will be transported to the place where that it will turn it will be turned into reusable uh, materials for housing uh, to build schools as well. And so um, we're planning to do that in 2023. And uh, a lot of it is 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 educating the public because it's great to organize something to help the environment, but then you don't want them the next day for them to go and buy a water, you know, a bottle of water, and then to just throw it away. Mm-hmm. That's not going to help. So it's about educating them to to use l- less plastic, and then you know, going to re- um, shopping or at uh, grocery stores to bring your own bag um, uh, material. But you know, the, the 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 bag that you bring, it's recyclable that you can use it, and then you're not asking for. The, the, just like the gentleman that you said that would go to the supermarket and then he buys a drink and then they give him three bags. He leaves the <laughs> I've door. I've seen people put a bag and a bag and a bag. Correct. It drives you crazy. Like, wait, did you just use three bags there for one item? And mm-hmm. there, again, the highs and lows of Vietnam, I, I see it in the young people. As a teacher, just seeing young people, they are so switched on about the environment. They're connected to the globe, the internet. They understand this. You know, we teach it in school. They learn it in school. They do projects about the environment. So I think the young people, they're great. They're on board. My, my, the biggest problem is older people. I don't know what the age cutoff is. Like, I don't even mean like old, like 60s. I think even people in the 30s or 40s, some of the behavior, like the bags, accepting the bags, reusing it, um, yeah, drives you to despair. <laughs> One time I was driving along and someone threw trash out the car window at a red traffic light. So I just picked it up and opened his door and put it back in. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. I'm not normally that confrontational at all, but I was, just, I was so angry that he just casually like threw it out. I don't know. So I didn't open his door. His window was open. And I just, I did pick it back up. I was on my bike and just threw it back in. I was like, what are you doing? So my question there is though, can we educate the older generations or the older people? Because they're the hardest ones to get to, right? Because the kids are on board. The kids are getting taught about it from preschool. Um, I think they understand the environmental problems. How are we going to change that behavior here in Vietnam? It's habit. It's, it's basically it's, it's their habit of through all these years to to do it, and no one has really explained to them that what you're doing is hurting the environment. And it's just doing a lot of education, doing workshops, going out there into the community, and then uh, letting them see this is how you're harming the environment. That it's not just harming you, but it's harming your kids your grandkids the future generation and then to show them that if you try to scale back using plastic or um you know a material that is you know uh, is reasonable or biodegradable that's gonna help us to keep mother earth stronger and um you know it takes a lot of uh i guess promotion and marketing uh, of getting getting the word out there um and then also just working with, uh, you know, the, 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 the cities and the district, the government to, to help them to mm. try to come up with a campaign where it relates to, to the older generation. Uh, like you said, the younger generation in, in the schools, they're starting to understand to bring their own water bottle that they can refill the water rather than buying a new plastic water bottle every day. I've noticed that in my classrooms, the kids all show up with reusable bottles. And then even in the, 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 Hallway, like there's a, a water jug, used to be plastic cups. A few years ago, those got changed to paper. I still think they're lined with wax, so maybe they're not 100% environmental, but still better than plastic. Um, and I also want to give a caveat as well. 
this is not a Vietnam problem because I've been all over Southeast Asia. It's ve- it is very much a Southeast Asia problem. China, I think, aren't much better either. But like, you know, I've been to Indonesia. We were in this beautiful city. My wife will correct me when she heals this because she always does. I think it was Kota Kinabalu. And we were on this beautiful waterfront on the river and literally just watching people finish their drink in a plastic cup and just throw it over the edge. And we were just watching, like, it's nearly in tears. Like, we were going diving the next day, not far from that. And we're like, what are you doing? Like, just, I just want to give a caveat. It's not just Vietnam. It's a it's a big problem. Yeah, Water I think like, Vietnam, the, the government has really um, starting to see that... Uh, uh, as the population is growing and, um, you know, more people have more income, which means they're buying more stuff, uh, more items for their homes. Um, uh, the government has put into a new regulation, I think, within the next, all the all the manufacturing and corporations, they need to be green, go green within the next, I think, uh, I think it's 50 years now. I think it was 30 and they changed it to 50. And that, uh, you know, they have to meet the standard. Uh, if not, then it's going to be some hefty fines. And I think, uh, you know, whether it's heavy taxes or whatever. Um, but I think we're starting to slowly see um, stores and mom and pop shops not offering bags anymore. Where they'll use re- recyclable cartons. So if you wanted to, when you buy something, you wanted to take it back to your uh, home, you would have to go and go to the recyclable carton and use the recyclable carton, and uh, or just carry it back yourself. And so they don't offer any more plastic bags. Mm-hmm. And so that's one way. Um, it continues just education. Mm-hmm. You know? And just to go back to my original point, yeah, it was, it was so inspiring when we first met, and then you were going to have this meeting and to hear that I, I'm a bit jaded now. I'm, I'm not even as old as you, and I'm already jaded. That I feel like we can't. We've missed the, the boat. So meeting people like yourself and then meeting recently Denise Trung, who runs the Trash, Trash, Trash Hero, yeah, yeah. what you mean, City, kind of inspires me to be like, yes. Because I think, you know, before when I was younger, I thought you could make a difference. Now I feel like I can't. But it's good to know that other people still have that feeling and it inspires me. Now let's go back to, you You went to community college. Just quickly, so how did you end up Saatchi and Saatchi? That's such a big name. I know nothing about advertising, but everyone's heard of Saatchi and Saatchi. So how did you go to there and then then what made you decide to come back in 94? Yeah, so when I graduated, um, I was part of a church in the U.S. And so they um, was putting together a mission team to to go and spread the word of God to uh, Asian um, and basically also help with charity in Vietnam. And so they selected uh, out of thousands of applications from universities, they selected eight students. And so uh, a lot of my friends... I'm new to the church still, um, but I had a deep passion to help, you know, uh, the community and also to help uh, my people here in Vietnam, even though I never have been to the country. Oh, never before? Never. This is my first time outside. uh, I've been to Mexico, uh, which is right near the border of the U.S., but um, outside of Mexico, I haven't been out to another country. Um, And so I was very privileged and honored to be selected. I was the youngest to be selected from the eight out of thousands of applications. And so um, they prepared us, sent us to Japan, the Philippines, and then we ended up in Vietnam. And so even though um, they covered uh, our flights and fare, you know, certain parts of the, we basically sold everything to come to Vietnam, all of our possessions. So we ended up only with just like one or two bags and no money here. And so um, 
we had to find work. And I started off, um, again, God looking after after me. Um, you know, someone was overheard me talking uh, at a restaurant that, hey, I need to find a job. And this young lady said, hey, I don't know who you are, but uh, my newspaper, uh, my publishing house is looking for a salesperson that can speak English. And you sound like you speak English very well. And so I got it, uh, started off with the Ringe Group, which is a Swiss uh, publishing house. And um, they uh, they take care of a few published uh, titles here, like uh, New Fashion Magazine. I think they're handling L right now, and uh, Tobacco and Vietnam. So I started off there as sales, so just selling ads. Um, didn't know anything about the business, even though I studied marketing and advertising in the U.S. It's much different what you learn in the universities to actually applying it. And so, um, you know, I found out I'm pretty good at sales. So I sold ads the first two years, just, you know, um, going out and meeting customers and uh, basically putting ads into the magazine. And so um, through that connection to two years, I met with different agencies, ad agencies, research companies. And um, it's a network when, when it comes to advertising and marketing. And so I was uh, suggested, you know, Sachi and Sachi would, is interested uh, you know, in your skills. And so I started off uh, uh, as a media executive first, just learning about media in Vietnam and, you know, how the TV, print, and outdoor and radio works. And so um worked my way up. So after a few years, uh, became media manager and media director. And first, very honored. Um, you know, my former boss, she's actually, just, I think, the, still the head of uh, publicist here in Vietnam. And she gave me the opportunity to grow and, um, you know, be myself, but also teach me about the business. And uh, from there, you know, after a few years in media, I uh, went into the research business uh, to learn the other side. Now, there's not many people that do that. Either you're in on the brand side, agency side, or the research side. So I, I basically have covered almost all my bases. I've been to the agency side. Uh, brand side, research side, um, and uh, the media side, which is like the four main uh, industries. And so there's not many people that all, that has experience in all four. So I wanted to cover all my bases for down the line if I had another opportunity. So that's how I got into Saatchi. And then uh, after a few years, um went out and branched on my own to set up my own media company. Uh, so I felt, okay, let me give it a try. I feel like this is very common in Vietnam. I've noticed this. I think because it is such a, an emerging market. I see it even happen even recently. People work at a company, learn what they need to learn, and then they're like, okay, I'm going to go sell my own one. Yeah, I think Vietnam is, is... I tell people Vietnam is a land of opportunities. In the U.S., they, they sell the american dream yeah yeah but it's not it's but it's not, not yeah, yeah you know you're basically in debt yeah. with the credit card you're in debt with uh, so many from uh, health care you know health insurance uh house insurance just so, car insurance you're you're you what what you make is, is basically all goes towards insurance and then and, and paying off your university debt and not so here you're allowed to um, um to create your own opportunity and also fail and then be able to to start again. Which it used to be like that in America, right? That's what the American dream was. I think that's why a lot of Americans come here 
and Europeans, and we come here and we're like, wow, this is this is what life should be like. I'm gonna add a caveat again. Anyone who says that, myself included, we're not locals. We don't have the same pressures. We don't have the same cultural uh, pressures. We don't have the same uh, family pressures. So that is a very insular opinion I'm giving. I know that not every Vietnamese, we've already talked about lots of Vietnamese people are very poor, don't have those opportunities. So I don't want people listening to think that I'm saying that everyone can come here and just do anything. But there are more opportunities for those who can seek them, right? Correct. I mean... I mean, I have friends who came here with only, let's say, $5,000, basically their life savings in the U.S., and now they're millionaires here. I have friends who came here with uh, half a million dollars, and they ended up broke. Uh, their business turned sour, and they had to go back to the U.S. with nothing. So I think it, it, it has to come with, you have to come with the right mindset, work hard, uh, deal with the pressure or different environment. Um, even though... I'm by Vietnamese blood. I'm still a foreigner uh, because I have a U.S. passport. So it's my country. This I feel this is my home and my home. But I'm still actually a foreigner in my own country that I was born in. So and that's something I just can't. Like, many people have said the same thing as what you've just said, and I just can't imagine that. I don't know what that feels like. I never will to be in your own country, but feel like a foreigner. That to me is mind blowing, and and yeah, it must be. Difficult, challenging, amazing. I'm sure everything in, in between. And that's that's why I um, there's a lot of uh, overseas Vietnamese platforms out there, which is they're doing very well, awesome. They're providing a lot of positive energy, and I think we need more of that. And so a lot of my friends said, Mike, why don't you create something, share your story? Because I'm actually a private guy. I don't. This is my first time really. Uh, I've done interviews with um, newspapers and magazines, but not much. It's more of the, you know, uh, the sports side. They wanted to uh, understand how I helped so many kids to to um, get off the streets and, you know, on the right path. Uh, but business-wise, this is my first. So I really appreciate you uh, inviting me. Well, thank you for sharing. Yeah, and, and the, with the Vietnamese, overseas Vietnamese community, a lot of, uh, a lot of us, um, we're at different levels in our life. And a lot of them are uh, trying to identify where do they fit in? Um, example, myself. Um, born in Vietnam, but grew up in the U.S., left when I was a teenager. Came back here, um, been here almost 30 years, you know, and, uh, you know, basically seen the growth of Vietnam from the beginning and now is um, a teacher, a businessman, uh, you know, someone that is uh, trying to help the community. And then I have friends who are um, PhDs, uh, well-educated, um, high position, uh, speaks English, uh, Vietnamese fluently, but don't really identify as Asian because they grew up in um, the UK, they grew up in Denmark, they grew up in uh, Czech Republic. And so they weren't around a lot of Vietnamese. Um, their family's Vietnamese. They speak Vietnamese, but they don't identi really identify with the culture. And so they don't know where they fit in. And uh, when they come, you know, we get together uh, every um, once or twice a month. Um, there's so many different overseas Vietnamese. Um, and so we, we see that everyone's just trying to fit in. And we have 
besides the common thread of we have the blood in us, the heritage, you know, we also want to be connected to each other. And a lot of them didn't know who to reach out to and how to um, be part of a community that can understand them. Because they felt they were the only one like this or not many people who are like them. But there is a lot of them out there that uh, maybe can identify with me or them. And, um, you know, uh, that's why I created the VQ Chronicles, because I want to connect, you know, uh, my brothers and sisters around the world to 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 each other through sharing the stories. Uh, we all have our own stories, and um, it's very difficult sometimes for some people to share theirs because it can be painful. Um, but um, I encourage you know, um, and it starts off with me. So I, I launched uh, the Vicky Chronicles launch in um, September. So I'll, I will introduce a just new platform so that I can connect. Uh, all the overseas Vietnamese, not just here in Vietnam, but around the world with each other. Um, not 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 for just business purposes, networking, but you know, social and just. If there's anyone out there that feel no one relates to them, I'm pretty sure there's someone in our group that is is can relate to them. And uh, you know, I think what I see is a lot of them is trying to find their identity. Uh, those like myself, we we found our identity now. We understand who we are, and, and we're comfortable now. There are a lot of young overseas Vietnamese that are coming back who lack that self-confidence. And, um, you know, some they don't speak uh, one word of Vietnamese. And uh, even though they're in a Vietnamese family. And so uh, they, they sort of feel ashamed. And uh, just being around our positive energy, they, they, we, we, we show them you don't need to be ashamed because we're not judging you because we're all different. Um, and that's why we have this group because we're all different. And... Uh, you know, we, we're all trying to help each other, support each other. And, um, you know, I hope the VQ Chronicle uh, platform will, will reach out to the other platforms out there. And we all do this together. Not compete, not not feel, um, you know, putting each other down, but lifting each other up. Well, I think this is a, a kind of, I don't want to overstate it and say a moment in history, but I think this is a special moment right now. And I've discussed this before with Tracy Nguyen Mang. I don't know, have you ever come across the Vietnamese Boat People podcast? And the host of that, and I bring this up nearly every episode. Tracy Nguyen Mang, amazing person, um, very similar story to, to lots of Vietnamese. And we talked about it with her, but I've also interviewed um, Vietnamese overseas people from Switzerland, from the UK, from the US, uh, another country that I forget right now. To me, I find it fascinating, as I mentioned to you, and I've mentioned it before on the show, this is brand new to me. I'm brought up in a white town, white city, white parents. Everyone's white. Brought up in Scotland. Very homogenous. That's all I know. And then meeting people like yourself who don't even know, like, it's not like you're from Vietnam. So you're like, I'm Vietnamese. I'm born in Vietnam. Everyone's Vietnamese. I know I'm Vietnamese. You're like, well, you know, it's, to me, it's it's fascinating because it's such a mindfuck. <laughs> like, I just can't imagine that perception. But what we talked about with Tracy and I've talked about with several other guests, as I feel like now, because we are past that post-1975 boat people, economic refugees, now we're at the, the education wave of immigration where people are traveling the world, we're now seeing uh, an amazing output from young Vietnamese overseas, whether it's Sarah, Sarah Nguyen in uh, Brooklyn who's making coffee. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's importing Vietnamese. Wing coffee. Yeah. Wing coffee supply. Um 
so I've had her on the show as well. There's uh, what the girl that was in Star Wars, I forget her name. Is it Rosie Tran? Yes, Rosie. Yeah, Rosie yeah, Tran. Yeah. Then yeah. there's the, 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 the artist, the Rosie. designer, the designer as well, Kong Tree. Yeah, Wing Kong, I think. Yep. Kong Wing. Yeah. Kong Wing. Yeah, You're going to yeah. say it all better than I can. But we're seeing all of this, and those are like on the big level as in famous, but then there's also, you're talking about all these CEOs, we're talking about all these people coming back to Vietnam, I, even Justin Young, you know, coming back to play basketball. I feel like because we're past that post-1975, this is what I said to Tracy, maybe we're just noticing it more, and maybe you as well, and Tracy felt the same, because we are looking at it, because I do it through the podcast, and she does it through her podcast, and you do it through everything you do. But I do think, that we're getting to the stage now where Vietnamese people are going to be more recognized worldwide because they're starting to come to the fore. And all these, look at the industries we just mentioned, like coffee, podcast, uh, acting, designing. Some of the top people are all Vietnamese and it's no longer... Have you ever seen the episode? It's that terrible comedian, Kevin James, where he eats pho for the first time. Yes. So cringe. He's like, oh my God, it's pho. Yeah. Amazing. And mate, it's just soup. Like, I don't even think pho is that good. Good. It's like my least favorite Vietnamese food. Um, so things like that were the really cringe. And then I think back to King of the Hill. Have you seen the cartoon King of the Hill? He wasn't Vietnamese though. He was Cambodian or Laotian. Can you remember which one it was? One of those. Two. One of it yeah. wasn't Vietnamese though, right? But it was the similar trope, right? He was yes. overseas yeah. Asian person living in America. I think that's now in the past, and we're now starting to see more recognition for Vietnamese overseas. Definitely. I mean. Uh... My friend Jenny Trang Le, she um, uh, is involved with Micah, the movie, and uh, doing was did awesome here in Vietnam. And then uh, she's in the U.S. now, and her uh, movie is doing great in the U.S. and getting a lot of support from the Vietnamese community. Um, you know, basically, you have a Vietnamese cast, directors, you know, um, uh, just an ensemble of of, of Vietnamese uh, actors and actresses, of especially these young kids. Uh, mind blowing job, awesome, inspirational, uh, movie that, um, I recommend, uh, um, not just Vietnamese around the world, but anyone that, that is about friendship and family and loyalty, uh, to go see the movie. And, um, you know, she's, uh, she has seen from the beginning with the Hollywood industry, um, we're starting to get recognized more, um, you know, the Asian culture and, um, now Vietnamese as well. You have um, a couple few, uh, you know, a couple of Vietnamese uh, actresses and actors that have uh, gone into the Hollywood um, industry, um, and so it, you know, I'm very so pr I'm very proud to see uh, my brothers and sisters finally getting recognized and all the hard work that they put in to to you know to be now providing the young generation with a role model. Someone that they can see, ah, that's someone like me, same skin, same eyes, um, eating pho, you know, and speaking the same language and uh, you know, going through the same cultural upbringing. And uh, I think right now um, I, I continue to, to, to hope and, and pray that uh, we continue to help our brothers and sisters to grow whatever industry, not just uh, movies. and But, you know, recently we had two um, NBA players that uh, has made it that are half Vietnamese. You know, they're uh, um, Vietnamese-American. And, you know, uh, so their parents, you know, one is Vietnamese and the other is uh, another nationality. And 
So made them play basketball to get taller, and then, and then what? <laughs> well, they both have a good size. <laughs> they both have a great future, and uh, you know now this is the first time in 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 uh, M, you know NBA history where you have uh, two Vietnamese. So that they just know. got drafted, right? Yes, I mean uh, the NBA. They had uh, you know um, back then. I think the New York Knicks many years ago drafted a Japanese basketball player, Japanese American. And for Asians, he was for like someone for me. He was like our role model because there wasn't many Asians. Many people didn't know there was an Asian player in the NBA, and he was the first. Well, look, tell us quickly before we go into the final questions. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Before we go into that, tell us just quickly what is the VQ Chronicles, um, and tell us quickly about your two new startups, Bao and uh, OMG Talent Management Management. And then we're gonna. I'm gonna ask you the final question. So VQ Chronicles, Bao and OMG. Yeah, the VQ Chronicles basically is to create a platform for you know my brothers and sisters around the world to connect um, the overseas Vietnamese here that's living here with overseas Vietnamese that are abroad and use our uh, to be synergized to to use our networks to help each other, uh, whether it's business, whether it's um, you know, um, socially. Um, and so there are other platforms out there. And so I felt that um, I wanted to create one here for our community here in Vietnam um, uh, so that uh, we can help each other out and uplift each other and support each other. So there's a lot of us that are business people. There are a lot of us are teachers, uh, educators, um you know, people that are uh, in, in not just in high positions, but, um, you know, if, if we help each other out, I think we grow stronger together. And so that was born about because, you know, I'm around so many overseas Vietnamese here in Vietnam and um, there's no, um, I guess, uh, leadership in terms of someone taking the lead to do something. We're all scattered in Vietnam. And so um, one of my business partners, John Vu, will, will, will start to take the lead of getting, uh, you know, uh, there's a group called uh, Viku Friends in Saigon. And so you, right now it's a social get to, you know, uh, chat group. Um, and so now John Vu will, uh, will start to make it more organized where we're helping each other and then making way for the next generation. And so the VQ Chronicle is a platform to to help share stories um, from all the overseas Vietnamese that is not just here, but it can be someone in uh, Finland. You know, you got the the guys who developed the the, the their shoe from coffee grinds. You know, Ren's um, original, and um, you know they have a great story to share, and uh, not many people might know who they are. But it's, it's from guys who are from Vietnam. And so if they can share that story to uh, our community, our overseas Vietnamese community, and, you know, um, spread the word of, you know, whether that um, uh, the Master Chef, that lady who won Master Chef many years ago, you know, just really help each other to grow as a community. And so uh, that launches in, in September. And, um, you know, um, this year has gone so quickly when you say it launches in September, to me, that's like eight months away. 
And then I'm like, oh no, that that's in three weeks. Three weeks. <laughs> yes. This is a, a long time in the making. I had this uh, idea about 20 years ago. But um, when the pandemic happened here, I basically pulled out. I had a list, a checklist of all the things I want to do before I move on. And uh, sort of like my legacy checklist. And um, the VQ Chronicle was on this checklist along with other projects that I have not done. And I said, you know what? This pandemic, I, I need to start doing it. And so um, this year I launched um, the September's um, the BOW project. BOW stands for Book and Organize. And it's basically to help you know SMEs, small, medium enterprises to promote their product and service. It's a free platform. And so for one full year, we're going to provide free advertising for people who have small businesses. If you want to promote your products here locally, but also uh, globally, come and list your product and service and put up your information in your images onto our platform. And, uh, you know, we're going to promote it for free. And part of that platform is to create community events. And uh, the VQ Chronicle is one of the key features of that platform. And uh, that is a way to reach out to my brothers and sisters here in Vietnam, but around the world and let them know that there, are, there is someone that's uh, looking out for, for you. Uh, you might not have reached out to us or know us now, but we hope that you will. And that we hope that you will send in your stories so that you can aspire the next Vietnamese generation around the world. Uh, because there's a lot of stories out there that's not being told. And it's because some people are just fearful uh, or they feel that this story is not meaningful. But uh, there's quite a few I know that we, we have lined up already of inspirational stories of people who just started from nothing and, uh, you know, has made something of themselves. And now it's giving back to the community. Um, there are there are platforms out there, but I think we're a little bit different because we're not focusing on famous people. We're, we're we're looking after the underdogs, people that they you never you never heard of, and we felt that they have a story that can help uh, our Vietnamese community and get draw inspiration from them. Uh, the second startup is called uh, OMG, which stands for Oh My Goodness. So um, uh, Vietnamese, we have this. Um, uh, it's not a dessert, but it's it's Oh My. It's basically like a dry plum. And it's very, um, very tasty. And so we draw that from that, the O in our OMGs is, is from the Oh My. So we got, Oh My Goodness. We're playing off the word, the Vietnamese wording. And uh, OMG telling group basically is to help. Uh, my group, we saw that there's so many talented people in Vietnam and overseas, but they're not being representative, represented correctly. Because uh, there's so when you say talent agency or it's it's a negative, you, you're looking at middlemen or you're looking at people who can take advantage of you, and uh, we felt we don't want that. We want to develop these talents and invest in their future. And it's not about money; it's about helping this talent to get to the next level, achieve their dream, and if we can push them and connect them to the right people while steering them in a direction where they stay away from the drugs, stay away from uh, the negativity of being someone using you, um, then we did our job. 
and so far right now we have we launched uh about a month and a half ago and we already have five awesome talents uh that have joined us um so if i read off some names we have vit max which is a uh, og hip-hop guy uh b-boy so he's known in vietnam as the top uh b-boy dancer we have a uh, Tumi, which is a vq uh, german sister who awesome voice yeah i mean she was the first female uh, artist that was signed by def jam i, I believe jeff wow. jeff jam records and then we have uh marty low martin low professional soccer player uh playing for hyphone fc former under 23 national team player uh from australia so vq from australia we have uh tunage so you got uh, uh world champion freestyle soccer player uh, you know, has won many awards uh, in different countries of freestyle soccer. And, uh, you know, he's traveled to, lived in Germany, lived in Singapore. Uh, we have DJ Cranny, one of the hottest female DJ that is, you know, uh, up and coming and uh, really is when she, you know, as a, uh, at any lounge or nightclubs or any uh, gigs that she does, is just blowing people away of the mix that she's putting together. Um, let's see if I'm missing anyone. Is that five? I think I maybe counted six, but we'll call it five. Yeah. And so, um, um, the goal is to get all these talents to work together, not as individuals. And, so um, freestyle soccer player about someone's DJ. Bring them all together. <laughs> yeah. Bring them all together and leverage each strength. So let's say one is more famous than another, but to put them and collaborate together and cross collaboration. And then to do it as a team. So they have our support and they have the team support. And uh, as uh, they're celebrities, but they know that it's very difficult to go on your own. And it's very, it's very hard for them to trust people and to trust a company with their image and their, their you know, copywriting and, you know, the IP. And so with us, you know, we're, we're two, uh, total of us three. Myself, Jason Mai, and John Vu, and um, we're all three VQ brothers from the U.S. And uh, we have something that we feel we can give to the community. And when when people meet us, they can see through any BS. They know that we're straight, honest guys, and we do, we've been here long enough that uh, they know they can see through us if we're gonna give them BS. Yeah, and they know that we're here to protect their image and. Um, help them to grow their business uh, and to do it get the community involved because they've seen how much we have done community work and helping um, charities and helping the the, the vq community as well yeah, and the the omg talent group basically is to take our vietnamese talent here and to give them the regional and global exposure and so we're not only working with local talents here, but we're reaching out to talents that, you know, overseas Vietnamese who are entertainment, singers, dancers, artists around the world, whether they're in Canada, Australia, the U.S., whatever country they're in. And if they're looking to to connect with us and for us to do collaboration and to, uh, you know, tour together, uh, bring our uh, program to other countries as a group so we're mixing local talents with overseas talents and combining and creating our program and we're going to bring this to the vietnamese community in other countries amazing yeah awesome well good luck with that that sounds amazing
So we're going to finish up now with uh, the questions that we ask everyone at the end of every episode. So we're going to go through them quickly. What one reason would you use to persuade someone to come to Vietnam? One reason. Opportunity. All right, that's a good one. Yeah, we talked about that a lot for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, what one reason would you use to persuade someone not to come to Vietnam? If you have children, education is very expensive, yeah. Yeah, so you have to think about that. Yeah. I was just talking to someone about that. I don't have children yet, but it's something I know is on. If it happens, then it's going to be uh, expensive. Yes. Uh, what is a common scam that you've heard about in Vietnam? I think uh, the typical one is the taxi driver where you might give him a, a note, the, the currency. Uh, let's say that, that uh, the ride was um, 100,000 uh, Vietnam dong, which is like $4. And you gave him the 100,000 note, but uh, uh, he said, no, you gave him 20,000. And so uh, he's like, no, you did not give me 100,000 when you actually did. And then he basically switched it. So he's showing you the 20,000 note in front of you. I haven't heard that one. Yeah. So from the airport, they do that a lot. Yeah. And you're probably so tired from a long flight. You're like, oh. Why argue? Yeah, well, that's true. We had at one time, we were meeting these friends in D4. And they were coming from D1, not far at all. We're meeting them for some, from, for some food. And he got things. He got so cheap here. It's amazing. Like I only paid like two hundred thousand dong on that taxi from D one, and we were like, "Wait, what? You paid how much?" He's like, "Yeah, it was only two hundred thousand. I was like, "It should have been like fifty thousand dong, if that." But again, he's still so cheap. Another relatively. One, another one actually is is basically for not just people who live here, but for tourists. Is basically the exchange. Um, if you blink your eye, you give them. Uh, you know, two hundred dollars or whatever, um, and then they'll uh, basically count in front of you. But they they'll take a note real quick off and say that you didn't give them. You know, they, they do it in front of you, wow. but they're so fast. Yeah, like you a magician. Know, yeah, they, they'll take a they'll drop the note on the floor or something. So yeah, what's something you hear about Vietnam that's not true? Uh, there's a lot of people have a perception that. We don't have five-star hotels, that we don't have the proper city, proper facilities to host uh, big events uh, or conferences or expos uh, when we actually do. Um, so I see a lot of people who do business come here and they're shocked. They're like, wow, I didn't know you had a convention center. Oh, I didn't know you had a five-star hotel that meets the same standard as you know international standard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Now, what question would you like to ask the next guest? Why did you stay as long as you stayed in Vietnam? All right, that's a good one. We're collecting these. We're going to ask them all <laughs> later. And last question. If Vietnam was a person, how would you describe them? A young business person that just launched a startup. <laughs> that, that's all of Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, that's very common here right now. So because there's so much opportunity. There's right? so much opportunity. Yeah. And there's so many things that uh, you know can go right and so many things that can go wrong. And as a startup, you have to really do everything on your own. All right. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I really enjoyed our conversation. Amazing to hear your story and share it. Uh, thank you so much. I know it's different. I've had people on the show before say similar things. Like, you know, I've only been in the newspaper where they're going to use one or two lines. And uh, I do appreciate it. It's a, it's a big thing to come on and, and be able to share that story because it may, it may not be something that you've done before. So thank you for sharing that with our listeners and with me. I really appreciate it. 
I'm sure everyone listening you did as well. So anyone listening, make sure you check out OMG Talent Management. Bow, I'll put the links in the show notes. Is there anywhere else that people should follow you if they want to get in touch with you? I'm actually, uh, people don't know I'm a businessman. They, uh, my profile is a professional basketball coach. So they know as me as Vietnam Basketball Academy. Uh, they don't find out that uh, I'm actually, you know, doing a lot of businesses here until they actually meet me. And so um, they can find me usually as teaching a lot of kids uh, the sport of basketball. So they can Vietnam find Vietnam Basketball Academy. Yeah, Vietnam Basketball Academy. So, awesome. We'll put the link for that in yeah. the notes as well. Go check it out. All right, Mike, thank you very much. This has been awesome. Have an amazing day. Thank you, Neil, so much. And uh, seven uh, million bikes to, to give me this opportunity to share my story. You're very welcome. Cheers. Thank you. hope you enjoyed this episode if you're like me you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public wi-fi this opens you up to digital snoopers it's a massive problem it can be your internet service provider or you know who looking at what you do online or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data these days it is vital that you keep your data safe NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers.